Welcome to Music for Life, exploring the purpose and value of music to humanity's enrichment. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is Wolfgang Savalisch conducting the Staatskapelle Dresden in the first movement of Franz Schubert's Symphony No. 8, dubbed the Unfinished Symphony. It is called unfinished because symphonies usually have four movements. This one only has two, and the first two follow the typical format for first and second movements, that is, if there were going to be more. Plus, Schubert did compose a small segment of a third movement, indicating that he did intend there to be more to this symphony. Though Schubert died young, at the age of 31, he had started this Eighth Symphony at age 25, so he had six years to complete it, but again, he never did, even though he did go on to complete a Ninth Symphony. reason, Franz Schubert never got back to completing the third movement or writing a fourth, and this symphony stands as one of the most famous examples of music that was never completed before a composer's death. Today on Music for Life, we will explore some of the incomplete masterpieces of music history. In our Sounds of Scripture segment, we will talk about a musical book of the Bible that may never truly be finished. And in our Classroom Corner, we show how music education is something that never ends.
hopefully we can get to it all today and not leave it as this episode is titled Unfinished. I was really excited to tackle the subject of incomplete or unfinished works, but I was struck while working on this at what a sobering episode this will be. Though composers can live on in our memories, their lives come to an end, and certain things they were working on simply go unfinished or have to be completed by someone else. That is a reality we confront in music history, and this will be a truly intriguing journey through the standard repertoire today. Before we get into this sweep of history, let's have our Sounds of Scripture segment where we survey the Bible's many references to music for a longer sweeping historical perspective on our episode's theme. We have covered a great deal of material in these Sounds of Scripture segments over the past two seasons of Music for Life. We have covered the biblical record's 300-plus references to music, if not explicitly, at least in principle. In about 40 Sounds of Scripture segments total, we have covered a variety of topics. We have discussed every modern instrument family and its counterpart in the biblical record, including the ancient versions of the symphony orchestra, The Bible gave us evidence of antiphonal music being employed in ancient times, the seven-note scale being used in ancient music, as well as evidence of the ancient idea of the harmony of the spheres, the connections between the universe, mathematics, and music. We explored some of the mysterious musical terminology employed in the Bible. We saw the biblical record's endorsement of music therapy, of virtuosity in music, or improvisation and spontaneity. We saw compositions intended to be a teaching tool, some written for specific seasons, some in honor of a victory. We explored how biblical music was impacted by praiseworthy kings, by language and poetry, impacted by dance, by birds, by nighttime, warfare, death. We discussed the Bible's great composers, administrators, and performers, both male and female. We learned about the biblical record's national songs. We explored the folk culture of the ancient Hebrews, plus its intriguing connections to the modern Celts. We explored the biblical record's great ensembles and teams, from father-son pairs to massive groupings, and we saw some miraculous results recorded from these many musical instances. And in this episode about unfinished music, I want to finish our last Sounds of Scripture segment. The star of these segments has been the Old Testament book of Psalms, as its writings contain not only many references to music, but they are themselves musical compositions, and they give us a glimpse into the music of the ancient world. And there is a detail pertaining to this compilation that relates to our episode's theme today. See, the book of Psalms were actually canonized as five separate books arranged in their current order, likely by Ezra. The compilation counts as one book of the Bible when we talk about the canonized scripture, but it could very easily be listed as 1 Psalms, 2 Psalms, etc., like the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles were divided by some later into two books, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and even though those weren't two books each. Some Bibles even show the five-part division of the book of Psalms by writing book 1 in front of Psalm 1, book 2 in front of Psalm 42, book 3 in front of Psalm 73, book 4 in front of Psalm 90, and book 5 in front of Psalm 107. 
And even if your Bible doesn't list these book headers, you can still know where the ends of each book of Psalms are by the word Amen, appearing at the end of the Psalms that close out each book. There's an Amen at the end of Psalm 41, at the end of Psalm 72, at the end of Psalm 89, and at the end of Psalm 106, ending each of those first four books of Psalms. This is much like the New Testament practice of writing Amen at the end of a book of a Bible to indicate that the work is complete or finished and that what we see in the canon is the complete work. However, there are a few New Testament books that do not end with Amen, indicating that the final part of the record was either not completed or was intentionally not canonized. And circling back to the Psalms, the same can be said of the fifth book of Psalms. Though the book of Psalms ends after Psalm 150, there is no Amen at the end of Psalm 150 as there is at the end of the other four books, making this book of Psalms unique from the other four. Is this because more Psalms are included in other parts of the canon, other parts of the Bible, and the Amen would be too conclusive of an ending? Habakkuk 3, for instance, is a psalm that was canonized after the majority of the psalms had been written and put in the book of Habakkuk. But we could speculate that, based on that principle, the missing Amen at the end of the last book of Psalms shows that not only is this book not complete, but could there ever be a limit put on the number of musical compositions like the psalms? This has been Sounds of Scripture. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's episode is titled Unfinished, and in it we are exploring some of the incomplete masterpieces of music history. We will start in the Baroque era, the years of which, for musicians, follow the years of life for its most revered composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, who lived from 1685 to 1750. Bach's final work was called The Art of Fugue, supposedly intended to be a model of how perfect fugues should be written. We've explained what fugues are on many a previous program. As a large work consisting of 18 movements, 14 fugues, and 4 canons, it demonstrated Bach's extraordinary talent and fascination with the possibilities of counterpoint, different parts imitating each other at different times and all working together beautifully. The fact that Bach died before completing the work adds a little mystery to this final composition. A first draft was written in 1742, and Bach would continue to work on the manuscript over the next several years until his death in 1750. The last movement was left incomplete and broken off mid-measure, measure 239, leaving empty staves until the end of the page. In that last movement, which remains incomplete, Bach used the letters of his last name to establish the subject, or the main theme, for this final fugue. That's an eerie irony considering that this fugue is the one he never completed before dying. How do the letters of Bach's name work in music? Well, the main theme of that final fugue starts with a B-flat, which is called B in German nomenclature, and then A, and then C, and then B natural, which the Germans call H. We're going to hear the final counterpoint of the Art of Fugue, which contains three fugues, the third being this one based on B-A-C-H. And it will be very discernible where that third and final fugue begins, because you will hear the four-note motive, B-A-C-H, as I'm playing here. And about a minute and a half after that fugue begins, the music just stops. 
After that incomplete measure, we see this written in the autograph, in the handwriting of Bach's son, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. Quote, While working on this fugue, where the name B-A-C-H appears in the counter-subject, the composer died. Unquote. Now, whether that's literal or figurative, there's been some speculation. Now, we're going to hear a recording of the Emerson Quartet. We don't know if Bach intended this for a string quartet, because he wrote the Art of Fugue in open score, which means one voice per stave, and he never specified which instrument was to play which stave. But it works well in the string quartet format, given the highest voice and lowest voice fit nicely within the range of the violin and cello, respectively, and the middle voices can be covered by a second violin and the viola of a string quartet. So here is the final movement, and when you hear the B-A-C-H, know that the end is coming, and it will just stop. Don't worry, your device didn't just inexplicably pause the music. That is the measure where Bach wrote, no more.
that could possibly be one of the most tragic moments in music history. The end of Bach's final composition, The Art of Fugue, incomplete, mid-piece, mid-measure, and that recording by the Emerson String Quartet stays true to that, not trying to complete it in any way, but just letting the music stop where Bach figuratively died. Now, there was a story in the Romantic era based on that inscription at the end by C.P.E. Bach that led people to believe that the composer actually died while penning that fugue and that the work was literally cut off by Bach's death mid-measure. That is not widely believed by people today. Bach probably stopped working on the art of fugue well before his death, but at a time when his eyesight failed him to the point of making composition an impossibility. But still, that unfulfilled and unfinished measure is a haunting reminder of man's mortality and is, at least figuratively, where Bach did stop composing in this life. As we move into the classical era, we come upon one of the great incomplete works of the standard repertoire, The Requiem in D Minor by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, which we've discussed portions of on the program before. A requiem is a choral work intended to honor the dead, so I don't think the irony escapes anyone, the fact that Mozart died before it could be completed. Mozart sketched out a lot of this 14-movement work before his death, though, usually writing the choral and vocal parts and an accompanying bass line indicating the chordal structure that he wanted underneath and saving the full orchestration for later, which he never got to for most of it. I played the Tuba Mira movement in our brass episode to illustrate solo trombone playing. I played the mournful Lacrimosa, Day of Tears movement in our episode on the chorus. And that movement, incidentally, was one of the last that Mozart had written out any complete sketch for, even if it was just the first eight bars or so. There was a little of a sketch for a movement to follow that one as well, but that was it. I found this quote quite amusing on classicalnotes.net. It says, Constanze, Mozart's widow, apparently tried to enlist a number of other respected composers to finish the Requiem, but ultimately settled for Franz Sussmeier, a copyist and occasional pupil who happened to have been at the Mozarts during the composer's final night, but for whom Mozart had had little regard. In letters to Constanze that fall, Mozart had called him a blockhead and a lamp cleaner and likened his mental acuity to that of a duck in a thunderstorm. (laughs) The crucial question that has perplexed scholars is how much of the final product qualifies as authentic Mozart. And that's the end of that quote. Well, we know he fully finished and orchestrated the first movement, the introit, This movement leads right into the fugue for the second movement, the Kyrie Eleison, or Lord Have Mercy on Us, which had all the vocal parts completed, plus the bass line, enough to have the piece sufficiently finished and sound like authentic Mozart by really any pupil. So let's listen to these opening two movements. That website I quoted said this first movement embodies an astounding blend of the old polyphony of Bach with the forward-looking mournful lyricism of the coming era. The first movement asks God to grant them rest and says God is to be praised in Zion and Jerusalem. The second movement asks, Lord have mercy on us, Christ have mercy on us. Let's hear this recording by the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields Orchestra and Chorus with Sir Neville Mariner conducting.
are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. In today's episode, we are exploring some of the incomplete masterpieces of music history in an episode I've titled Unfinished. Sir Neville Mariner conducted the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields Orchestra and Chorus in that recording of Mozart's Requiem, a famous incomplete work of the standard repertoire. Quite a bit of controversy remains over to what degree the completed work honored Mozart's intent, that work being finished by an occasional pupil, Franz Sussmeier. We heard the first two movements just now, the first of which was completed by the composer and the second heavily completed, rather than just sketched out like much of the remainder of the work. As we move into the Romantic era, I want to talk about two great works that remained incomplete at the time of the composer's deaths. One is an example from later in the Romantic era, but the other is one early in the Romantic era, and one that we've already talked about on this episode. At the top of the program, I played a portion of the famous first movement of Schubert's Symphony No. 8, the Unfinished Symphony. I explained how it appears Schubert intended to write more movements, but never did in the last six years of his young life. He began writing this symphony around the time of an onset of an illness that would ultimately result in his early death. And the work never even premiered in his lifetime. The first two completed movements were not performed until 1865. When Schubert received an honorary diploma from Graz Music Society in 1822, he gave a score for this work to Anselm Hüttenbrenner, a friend of his who was a member of the society. It was given to the friend as a token of gratitude. Hüttenbrenner apparently forgot that he had been given the score for years. He hadn't told anyone that he had it until he gave it to the Vienna Music Association 42 years later. Not long after that, the work was premiered. We heard a portion of the first movement, but let's hear some of the second movement, the final completed movement of this incomplete symphony. Again, this is a recording of the Staatskapelle Dresden with conductor Wolfgang Savalisch. Thank you. 
That was the slow second movement of Schubert's Symphony No. 8 in a recording by Wolfgang Savalisch conducting the Staatskapelle Dresden. Usually, symphonies have four movements, a moderately fast opening movement, a slow movement, a minuet or scherzo movement, and then a fast finale. Though Schubert did sketch out part of a third movement, indicating that he intended this to be a complete four-movement work, the second movement that we just heard was the last movement he completed. He died about six years later, never having circled back to it. That was an example from the early portion of the Romantic era. Toward the end of the era, we have an Italian opera by Giacomo Puccini, one of the greatest operas ever, in my opinion, and yet it was never fully completed by the composer. It premiered two years after his death. The opera is Turandot, famous for the tenor aria Nessun Dorma, which I've played on this program before. That's the part in the story where the lead tenor comments on how no one in Beijing is sleeping because the domineering princess Turandot has commanded its citizens to find out his name before morning. The lead tenor, Kalaf, is traveling through with a servant girl, Liu. When Liu is captured and cruelly interrogated to reveal her master's name, she won't answer because she's in love with him, and to protect him from execution, she ends her life so her knowledge of his name cannot be revealed. This is the aria where that happens. At the end of the aria where Liu dies, the chorus shouts, Parla, parla, il nome, their last chance to get her to speak, speak the name. It's such a dramatic moment in the opera, underscored by the fact that this is also the last thing Puccini fully composed and orchestrated. At the premiere in 1926, Arturo Toscanini, the most famous opera conductor in the world, was conducting. Mussolini was to have attended, but canceled when Toscanini refused to open with the fascist anthem. Right after Liu's cortege left the stage, Toscanini turned to the audience and said, At this point, the maestro died. Now, Puccini had sketched out in some detail what the remaining material should be. He had also left some notes about his intention for the piece, saying that it should have something about it of the grand, the bold, the unexpected, and not leave things where they began. Toscanini apparently was not pleased with how Franco Alfano had completed Puccini's opera, complaining that he introduced too much original material. Let's hear this dramatic aria, the dramatic end of Liu's life, and in some ways, the end of Puccini's. This is an outstanding recording with soprano Montserrat Caballé and with Zubin Mehta conducting the London Philharmonic.
the dramatic end to Liu's life in the opera Turandot and the point around which Giacomo Puccini's composing ends. We heard soprano Montserrat Caballé, the London Philharmonic, and Zubin Mehta conducting. As we move now into the modern era, we come upon a work by Béla Bartók, a concerto for viola and orchestra. Bartók died at the end of September 1945, Earlier that year, violist William Primrose commissioned Bartok to write him a viola concerto. Bartok began work on the concerto that summer. In early September, Bartok wrote to Primrose that he had completed a draft of his concerto, but anticipated that it would take him another five or six weeks, so long as nothing interfered, to finalize it. However, by the middle of September, Bartok's health was declining rapidly. Tibor Sherley, a close friend and pupil of Bartok's, visited him on the last day he spent at home before he was taken to the hospital where he died a few days later. During this visit that Sherley had with Bartok, Sherley recalled that Bartok had been in bed working hard to finish his third piano concerto. Shirley knew that Bartok had also been working on a viola concerto, and he inquired about whether it was complete. The manuscript sheets for this concerto were sitting in a pile on the nightstand beside his bed, and Bartok said it was outlined, but he still had to work on the details and scoring. After Bartok's death, Shirley set his hand to complete the viola concerto. While all the other major components were there for him, he had to figure out how they all went together, for the pages were unnumbered, and there was hardly any indication of the intended instrumentation. It took some deciphering, for there were some irrelevant sketches scattered through the music, and it was very messy because Bartok wrote in ink and scratched out any mistakes that he made. Shirley was very familiar with Bartok's style, though, and he used this knowledge to determine Bartok's vision for the final work. After Bartok's death, William Primrose never imagined he would get to play the concerto that he himself commissioned. But four years later, he heard that the work was being transcribed for cello, his first awareness that it was even playable. Primrose said in 1970 that the concerto was well worth his investment to commission the piece because he had performed it more than 100 times. The work is just over 20 minutes in length, comprised of three movements that are ataka, meaning that each movement flows into the next without break or pause. Let's hear the third and final movement, which shows Bartok's proclivity for infusing the Eastern European folk spirit into his compositions. This is violinist Yehudi Menuhin on the viola, performing with the new Philharmonia Orchestra and conductor Antal Dorati. Thank you. 
That was Yehudi Menuhin on the viola, performing with the new Philharmonia Orchestra and conductor Antal Dorati. That was the third and final movement of Bartok's Viola Concerto, a work that he was writing on his deathbed but never finished. He had sketched out the entire work, and a pupil and friend of his filled in the orchestral assignments and other details to make the work complete after the composer had died. Next, let's have our Classroom Corner segment. Today we are talking about unfinished compositions. This relates to music education in the sense that learning the depth of the musical art will always be an endeavor that is unfinished. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote, Education never ends, Watson. It's a series of lessons with the greatest for the last. That maxim about education in general is particularly true about music education. Michael Miller wrote this toward the end of his music theory book, more appropriately, An Idiot's Guide to Music Theory. If you choose to make music a part of your life, your education never ends. Every song you listen to, every piece of music that you hear is an opportunity to learn more about the music you love. Keep your ears open and your mind free, and you'll continue to expand your knowledge and skills for the rest of your musical life. And that's the end of the quote. Certainly someone who has learned music from a young age can still learn more when older, partly because of the life experiences they can add to their development as an artist. It was the jazz legend Charlie Parker who said, Music is your own experience, your own thoughts, your wisdom. If you don't live it, it won't come out of your horn. And no matter what age one starts learning music, there are never enough years in a lifespan to bottom out everything there is to learn about this art form. As composer Sergei Rachmaninoff said, music is enough for a lifetime, but a lifetime is not enough for music. And with that, we finish Classroom Corner. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's episode is titled Unfinished. And in it, we have explored some of the incomplete masterpieces of music history, those highlights being J.S. Bach's The Art of Fugue, Mozart's Requiem, Schubert's Unfinished Symphony, Puccini's Opera Turandot, and Bartok's Viola Concerto. We talked about the fifth book of the Psalms in our Sounds of Scripture segment, which has an amen conspicuously missing at the end of it. And in our classroom corner, we talked about how one's music education never truly ends. My special thanks this show and this whole season to the team of researchers and writers helping me, Paula Malone, my wife, Alicia Lancaster, Emma Smithies, and Sarah Miller. Finally, let's have our dessert for today, where we usually hear an example from the popular or folk tradition to end the program. The song I've selected wasn't something that was incomplete, but it is a song that was released in a different form after the artist's death. When Nat King Cole recorded Unforgettable in 1951, little did he know that its most popular version would be that released by his daughter in 1991, where, thanks to studio magic, she sang along with his original recording. This father-daughter duet became a completion, in a way, of a song that, though finished before her father's death, became completed in a different way, thanks to this loving tribute. The song, being the last track of Natalie's Unforgettable with Love album, won four Grammy Awards. Her contribution to her father's work is definitely unforgettable. Enjoy. Unforgettable That's what you are Unforgettable Though near or far 
Like a song of love that clings to me How the thought of you does things to me Never before Has someone been born Unforgettable In every And forevermore And forevermore That's how you'll stay That's how you'll stay That's why, darling It's incredible That someone so unforgettable Thinks that I am Unforgettable too You have been listening to Music for Life, a production of KPCG 101.3 on the FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me.